That wasn't awkward at all. <laughs> Mike whispered in my ear. Um, that wasn't awkward at all. I felt like the whisper was the most awkward part of that whole thing. Um, hey, really good to be with you guys. As I was, as Mike mentioned, we were away in Kenya and um, at a leadership conference called Fearless. Um, it, it was. I just was got to tell you, I I was thinking about you and praying for you and. Um, just imagining, you know, part of what you imagine when you're away, I don't, some of you have been far away like that, is you're imagining a couple things. One is your own bed. One is food that, you know, you, you're a lot afraid to eat. Um, and you also, you, you imagine being back home, being with you. And I just was thinking, as, as we look over the past year, um, one of the things I want you to be affirmed in, in, in all of what has gone on in the past year, is um, that you are a generous people. I know that in a time where, and last year is a really interesting year for Mariner's Mission Viejo. If you're new with us, you don't really know this story, but over the past year, uh, the church was in a lot of transition. Who's going to lead this, the whole church, and what's happening here, and all that kind of stuff, and you continue to give faithfully, that God is still at work in this, uh, in and through the, the people that have gathered here that call this home, and I just want you to know how affirmed I am about that, and you should be affirmed by that as well, that there's a, there's a very real sense of God at work here that you're participating in, in your generosity, and so I just wanted you to know that as we look at the end of the year and our budget and stuff like that, there is there's a great, generous people who are faithful in a season where there wasn't everything, was not necessarily everything was all, was all clear. So just very, very cool, and um, you should be affirmed about that. So way to be generous. Um, when I was gone, you know, one of the things I was just thinking about it, as the kids were up here, doing, my daughter was on this piece of tape right here, maybe this one. But, um, but one of the things I was thinking about is in Kenya, and in, you know, this is true in everywhere else probably in the world except sort of the, the northern hemisphere, western church world, is that everybody moves way more when you're at, in like a worship set, setting. And I didn't, I didn't really, like really realize it until I was back here. You know, like um, they literally in every, in every church I was in, I was in a couple of them, there was always a dance break in like the, like the worships. And it's every age person in the room is like, okay, this is where we dance. Like we all just would do it. Like as if, as if Ethan was like leading and said, all right, dance break. We would all be like, you're crazy. Right, but here's one of the things you learn by being in Kenya is like that's kind of awesome. Like I, you know, like everything they do has a little music in the background during announcements. The band comes up, plays like a little smooth jazz in the background. You know, like and it's it's like 30 minutes of announcements and just like jazzy lounge time. You know, and then when it's time to worship, everybody they're like, okay, we're gonna sing, we're gonna worship, and they'll give you like a dance. If you don't know, they're like, we're gonna do this. You're gonna sit over here and you're gonna do a little kick, and then you come back over here and do this. And I, and I literally, I told the church I was speaking in, I was speaking at a church in Nairobi, and I, I told them, I'm like, you guys don't really do this in any other time except when people from America come here, right? You just just to mock us, like, like we sing and we dance at the same time, and it's like, for I was, I told the church, I'm like, you guys, you have to choose, sing or dance, because it takes every bit of concentration for us to do either. But here's the deal. In fact, when we were leading, we were leading our. Uh, Caleb, who leads worship at the Irvine campus, he, um, he was leading at this church in Nairobi, and he goes, all right, here's what we do in the States, because it was almost embarrassing. He's like, we do? We don't really dance, but we do jump up and down. And I was like, we do? <laughs> we should. We should do that. So everybody, our whole, you know, the Mariners group's doing this, because we, do, we can't do the whole dance moves and stuff, but the kids can. So if anything we can learn from, maybe we need to move around a little bit more to actually engage our body a little bit more in the like, you know, they were even doing the robot up here. Like, let's, whatever it takes, maybe we got to do something like that. But it was amazing to come back and feel like this is home and we don't move very much at home. We should move more. So anyway, there you go. We're going to, dancing will be happening in here. There will be something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. All right. Very good to be back home. I miss you guys so much. Um, it was very, very cool um, to be away, but better to be home, if you know what I mean. It's like um, it's so good to be home or be home and just be around uh, people and family and familiar faces. I know this is one of the things I talked about when I was telling other people about our church, as I said, this is a church that's like 
You know, and I'll, you'll hear me talk about this analogy a lot. Uh, when I was growing up, maybe you guys had this experience too. You had a, a neighbor when you were in high school in particular where everybody congregated at their house no matter what happened. Everybody found their way there. There was like, whether or not you were friends with that person, you always wound up there. They, they always had good snacks and good food and their mom was always like, what do you guys need? And if you, you want to spend the night, there was like plenty of bunk beds. Like it was just like the place where everybody could go. And I was trying to describe, I'm like, this is what Mission Viejo is like. It's like it's a family, but the doors are open. Whoever wants to come in, they can come in and be, I was like, and so people are like, that's a great analogy. I'm like, I know, that's who we are. It's so, I'm glad to be home back in this family. People are welcome to be here and be able to be themselves and be able to be challenged and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, very, very good to be here. We're in a Bible series. I'm rambling on and on. I miss you guys so much. We're in the Bible series. Bible is the series we talked about because over the past couple of months, you might have heard that the Bible miniseries that was on the History Channel broke all kinds of records. 100 million people watched it on TV and then millions more are still watching it on DVD as it's sort of creating a lot of a stir. Evidently, people are curious about the Bible. They want to know about what's in it. They're curious about if stuff really happened. They want to know, is this really for real? Is the God of the Bible worth someone following? Or is he just kind of this story, myth, fairy tale person? And so a lot of curiosity about the Bible. We've been talking about it for a number of weeks. We started in the very beginning with creation. Then we talked about Abraham on Father's Day. And then we talked about Moses and the Passover. We talked last week about David, I believe, because Gerardo spoke, right? David. And then, and then now we're, we're where we are now in this story of the Bible. And we're going to sprint through the Bible, really. But we're in the book of Daniel, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Before we do, before you jump and get your Bible, because I know you're going to jump or dance or do something and get your Bible. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll get into this week's message. All right? Father, it's good to be back in a home that is a welcoming, friendly place. It's so good to be back among people who find places for strangers who live out this idea of hospitality in such real and tangible ways. Father, for a lot of us as we walk in here, we've, we've, we've come a long way to be here. We've come from a place of desperation and loss and loneliness. Others of us have come literally at great distances to be back here. But Father, we know that you greet us here and that it is you who um, gives us this home. And so Jesus, as we talk today, wherever we might be, whether we're at a great distance to come here, whether we're comfortable being here, whether we're new or it's our hundredth time here, that Father, we know that you make it a home for us. And we would like, Father, it's our hope that we would be challenged, that you would move in us in powerful ways. And so Father, as we do that, as we jump into today's message, Father, would you um, speak to us in the stillness and in the quiet, before our, our lives get revved up again, we give you just a few seconds, a brief pause that you might speak to us um, in the words that are beyond the words. Father, we're grateful that you meet us here, that regardless of whatever circumstances brought us to be here today, that you greet us with open arms, with joy and excitement. Father, would we know a new sense of freedom and a new sense of joy by being here. In your name we pray, Father. Amen. All right, like I said, we're in Daniel chapter 1, if you want to be there. When I, uh, when I, so turn your Bible there, and uh, we'll get started in just a moment. But um, if, if you want to fall on your Bible, or also on the screen, or on your outline, we got everything you need. Um, not too long ago, I'm in the mall with my kids. My wife Amanda looks at me and she says, Molly, my daughter, she goes, Molly has to go to the bathroom. Hold my purse. Now, you have to know something here. When, whenever you hand a guy a purse, there's like a hundred things that run through their head and they're mostly crisis 
catastrophic scenarios that are involving them holding a purse. And I remember thinking, as my wife hands me my purse, Amanda goes, here, hold the purse. I remember thinking, what do you do if I'm not here? Do you just, do you, because I'm assuming you go to the bathroom, like, typically with your purse. You don't just find a stranger like, I'm sorry, I know this is awkward. I have to go to the bathroom with my daughter. Can you just hold our purse? Like, hold the purse for, like, no, you would take it with you, I'm assuming. And when you hand in the purse, you have to be able to hold it, guys, Oh, guys all know this. You have to hold it as if you've never seen it before. Like you've never seen this object before. I, I don't know. I'm totally unfamiliar with this thing. What do you, how do you pronounce it? Purse. Oh, yeah. it's uh-huh. And you have to look at it like it might explode a little bit. Just so you can't. You don't want to look too comfortable with it. Like, oh, well, how, how does one hold this device? You know, like. And, you know, for us, you can't hold it by the handle. Like, as if it's just one of the accessories you've got. Like. Yeah, it matches my shoes. That's why, I, that's why I got this, right? Can't hold by the handle. You got to hold it like a football, just in case. Just so it's like, you'd like as if you have no idea what to do with this thing. And there's a moment that goes through our heads when you're, when you guys who are get handed a purse by your wife, your girlfriend, whatever it is, there's a moment that goes through your head, which is, to whom am I loyal here? Because everything in my manhood says, run away throw this thing down, kill it, stomp on it, pretend like it's going to, you know, like you just saw, but have nothing to do with this thing, because all of manhood says that, or is your allegiance to your wife, whom you're going to go home with later on? Guys all know we have to deal with that sort of just reality of this is painful, but I'm going home with her, so I'm, I'm holding the purse, right? And the question being raised here is this, who has my allegiance to manhood, all of men everywhere, our man card, you know, holding on to it with pride and dignity? Do I, who get, or does my wife give my allegiance? And it's a question that gets asked throughout the Bible in so many different ways. Who has my allegiance? To whom do I belong? It's a question we get to be asked all the time is, who gets to win here? For the people of God, the Israelite people who have, have a long history of being free and then captive and free and then captive, at the time of Daniel, they're now captive again. And the question they have to ask themselves is, to whom do I belong? Who gets my allegiance? In the book of Daniel, we talk about Daniel. If you grew up in the church, if you're new with us, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know this. If you grew up in the church, there are like three stories in the book of Daniel, or three sort of things you would consider in the book of Daniel that we'd want to talk about. You'd be like, he's going to talk about one of these things. He's going to talk about wild, crazy prophecy stuff with like all kinds of powerful imagery. Some of you are like waiting for that. Others of you are thinking, what Jeff will talk about today is Daniel in the lion's den. Because that is awesome. It's a quintessential mark of faith. We saw it in the Bible miniseries. Or you're thinking what I might talk about is Daniel or his buddies, they get thrown into this, uh, this furnace. It's a fiery furnace, but they don't die. And there's like heat, you know, killing the guards outside. But no one dies. There's a fourth person in the fire. Like all kinds of stuff. You remember the story. But that's not what I want to talk about. Because we talk about Daniel... What we're talking about is something far richer, far more serious. It's far actually, it's actually something that gets glossed over when we talk about the story of Daniel and his buddies. But it's the world in which we live that's so, so brilliantly described in this, in this particular passage in Daniel we're going to look at. I think actually, it actually frames for us where we live now better than anything else we might read in the book of Daniel. So I want to take a look at it. It's in Daniel chapter 1. It starts like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came along to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Here's what's happening. Jehoiakim is not an awesome king. He's a guy who's kind of buddied up to the Babylonians. The Babylonians, by the way, are led by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And any time you see in the Bible, Babylon becomes kind of this metaphor or this kind of way of explaining. This literal, too, but it's also a way of explaining any kind of corruption, world system, or power that has a grip over the Israelite people. So the most famous sort of uh, captivity in Israelite history is the captivity in Egypt. We talked about that in week two, three, week three of the series. But then you have the Assyrians who come. These are just the big ones. The Assyrians come in in 722 about, and they capture all of the Israelites. Then the Babylonians come in in 587, and there's a series of captivities that happen which ultimately culminates in the Roman captivity which at the time of Jesus. But the way in which people often refer to any captivity in the sort of, this sort of time period is as Babylon. Because it was a brutal captivity. Because it was a time of terror and fear. And what happens here, the way you kind of know it's an unbelievably difficult captivity among everything else, is that Nebuchadnezzar and his guys come in and they pilfer from the temple the most holy articles which means that they defame the temple and then they take all of those holy things and place them in their own temple to their God. One of the markers of the Israelite people, of their belonging to God, central to their identity is the temple. And the holy articles being taken and the king being held captive means only one thing. God has abandoned his people. They live in this sense of, oh my gosh, we're alone. God has abandoned us. This is what that must mean. Only here's what happens. If you look at verse 2, I want you to see this really quickly. Who's responsible for the collapse of this land and its people? Look what it says. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Evidently what's going on here is that, first of all, the audience would have been unbelievably shocked by this. Whoa, God is allowing this to happen. And there's two ways to kind of look at this. One is to say this. God has abandoned his people. He doesn't care about them. Or the other way is to say this. No matter what happens, evidently God is behind or orchestrating something to which we cannot always see the end end game. God allows these things to happen. His own temple, his own name, and the holy articles from the temple to be taken, which means he must have some other reasoning for allowing it to happen at all. When we were in Kenya, we're doing our, during our debrief, kind of unwinding from all of what we'd seen and what we had learned, and we're away kind of in the wilderness a little bit. We're out kind of out on the outskirts, uh, um, out in the bush, and we're talking, and this guy goes, you know, one of the things I'm realizing, perfect example of this, he goes, one thing I'm realizing is I'm not always sure I'm okay with the things God is okay with. And you have to imagine these people are faced with that same thing. I'm not so sure I'm okay with the things God's okay with, because our identity and our place of worship and our God have all been defamed. Are we going to be okay with that? Well, maybe what we see is that God is the only one with the true power actually being expressed here. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Wait, by the way, I should say this. I'm going to stop there. Anybody in here? Anybody here a single guy? That, yeah, you're like, you're a single guy. Someday you want to be married. You want to, yeah, okay, there's a couple of us. What's your name right here? Right here, what's your name? Well, oh, both of you guys. Okay, Kyle's one. I heard one name, right? Did someone say Kyle? Okay, who's Kyle? Raise your hand, Kyle. Okay, Kyle, right here, this is Kyle in this room. Now listen, you guys, you can't see, but trust me, ladies, if you're single, Kyle, 
Now, okay, now listen. I want you to listen to the description that comes up here in a second. Tell me this doesn't describe Kyle. Okay, listen to this. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Check this out, verse 4, Kyle. Young men without any physical defect. Kyle. Handsome. Kyle. Showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Clearly, that's you. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Did you catch that? Handsome, intelligent, without any physical defect, well-qualified. Kyle, 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 right? Am I not right? People sitting around him, and all the ladies nodded because they know, right? They can just tell, right? Okay, now, this is what's going to happen. He was to teach them, meaning Ashpenaz, to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, here's the plan. Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful military king. His army is powerful. His people are powerful. He wins the battles he fights. And what he does is he takes all the people that look like Kyle, all these super handsome, intelligent people who are also available, if you know what I'm saying. And he takes these, these, these guys who are in the royal house, and he could have done this. He could have thrown them in a dungeon and said, you will follow me or you'll be killed. Instead, he says, let's get them, the best and the brightest, like Kyle, and we'll put them in our best, the best education system in the ancient world. These are people who had astro astrology. They had advanced mathematics. The Babylonians were known for their codified law system. They had a powerful and clear system of government. And they say, what if we took these guys, the best and the brightest, and not we gave them a Harvard, ancient world Harvard education. We fed them the best food. And we gave them a chance not to be treated as though they're part of the, like, you know, the, the sort of captivity. The captive, no, 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 we'll treat them like they're the royal family of Babylon. I mean, the most likely people to rebel in this situation are the young people with power who had a voice with the captive people. But Nebuchadnezzar says, let's take these guys, let's just put them in a really good environment. Let's give them the best food. Let's, let's, let's actually help them figure out what it might be like to live like us and the best like us. While the rest of the people are going to suffer, uh, they're going to suffer all kinds of abuses by the Babylonians. They're going to have invasion. They're going to have starvation. They're going to have threats of violence. They're going to feel as though they don't, that, that they're, they're somehow going to be um, imposed upon. But with these guys, the agenda is clear. Take the next generation of the most capable handsome, like Kyle leaders, and rather than coerce them into obedience, win them over with delight, with pleasure, so that their allegiance might be gained, not coerced. Here's what it says in verse 6. Among those who were chosen were, from, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, we have to know among all, there's lots of things that, that the Israelite people would do to mark themselves as belonging to God. There were festivals. So we talked about Passover a little bit. There's, there's a Passover festival. all kinds of feasts. There's special holy days. They have a mark of circumcision. They have all of these. I mean, there's like all kinds of things that are like mark them belonging to God. One of those things is, with, is a covenant name. A name that means that they belong to God. Names aren't just like, do they sound good? They're like a, 
they're kind of like a, a blessing upon a child to give them a name that would mean something about them connected to God. So like, they don't just choose a name like, oh, you look like a Clint. You should be Clint. Like, that's not how they do it. It's like, that would have to mean something. So here's what I mean. Listen to this. So Daniel, that name means in Hebrew, God is my judge. Uh, Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means the Lord helps. Now, these guys all get new names. And all of their new names are very subtle differences between their Hebrew name and their Babylonian name. And it's just a little bit different, only they start ascribing the loyalty to the Babylonian gods. You know, particularly the, the um, Babylonian god Baal, or Baal. Sometimes it's just written as B-E-L. Now, Daniel gets his name changed, for instance, to Belteshazzar, which means Baal, or Baal, is my judge. Now, here's what's happening then. You put all these guys who are the best and the brightest, you put them around the king's table with the king's food. They get the best education in the world, and they get a name change. And at this point, we begin to see what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar isn't attempting to give these guys an education about Babylon. He's intending to indoctrinate them into it, such that they would lose their own identity. There's this sense here that what he's trying to do is loosen their grip on who they are, whose God has called them to be, not by power and coercion, but by the subtlety of delight and pleasure and opportunity that they might just let it go. You know, as a, as a young family, we're always looking for places to, like, take cheap vacation and trying to figure out how we can do this. And so uh, one year, my, my family, well, I think my mom took our kids, and um, Amanda and I went. You can do, by the way, you can do this. This is incredibly, you, if you decide to go to Palm Springs in August, it's really cheap. <laughs> Nobody is dumb enough to do that except us. So we find a really nice, you can get, like, a really nice hotel at Motel 6 prices because nobody wants to be there. But except for the other people that are all really cheap and we all kind of look at each other like, yeah, it's hot, but we're on the same page, right? And I get it. So we're at this resort and there's a giant pool. I mean, it's this huge pool, probably as big as both of these rooms combined, maybe even a little bit bigger. And there's this huge pool. And typically what we do, because it's like 118 degrees, is you stand there with your neck up to the water, you know, kind of crouch down like this with a book on the side of the pool and just kind of, because you can't lay out on like the side of the pool or you'll just burst into flames. So you kind of have to be submerged, just kind of like this, and you're trying to, you know, do that kind of stuff. Well, I decide at some point, you know, I'm just going to lather up the sunscreen all over everything, and I'm just going to try to, I'm going to try to relax, because it's so quiet, you know? Those of you who have little kids, you just know that the quiet is just like, it's a rare gift from above, you know? You're like, in fact, I think driving out to the desert, we were like, we didn't have the radio on, we didn't speak much, and it was like, we just kind of nodded like, this is awesome. There's just no sound in the car, you know? And so... But anyway, we're at the pool, and I'm like, I'm going to lay down on one of those pool mats, and um, I just, I thought, I'll put my hand on the side of the pool, and I'll just, I'll just relax right here. It's so quiet. I'm not being splashed, or being asked to play Marco Polo, or Dad, throw me, or all of those kind of things. And there I am, just laying there, and I, and I just start to, oh, it's so good, the warmth, and, the, and I start to fall asleep. And I, I realize my, my hand comes off the, the side of the pool, and I start slowly drifting out to the, I just lost some of you are asleep too, I can tell right now. That was so, <laughs> back with me. Okay, so I start drifting out to the middle of the pool, and I have, you know, some of you guys are college students. I said this at 9 o'clock, and no college student comes in 9 o'clock service. But some of you guys are college students, and you know that moment 
where you see someone start to drift off in a big lecture hall, and you're just waiting for that moment when they have the full body spasm. <laughs> you know, like, you're just waiting for that moment to happen where it interrupts the entire class, and everybody looks over, and there's a guy who spilled pens and backpack and notebooks, and, you know, like, so there I am. I'm floating out in the middle of the pool and have like a, you know, like a total brain reset. Where am I? What happened? Where is everybody? What's happening here? Why is it hot? You know, everything. And so I, I do the full spasm wake up, and I realize, and it's so weird, because what I, I imagined I was right next to the side of the pool, only I'm in the middle of the pool, and I'm like, thank God nobody's here, because this is the most embarrassing thing. I like totally have the, okay, I'm, I'm fine, everything, I'm fine, everything, I'm fine, I'm fine. Where is it, where, where am I? Like, I'm totally trying to figure out where I am. Now, that's precisely what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do with these guys. He doesn't take these guys, and if you stay with the analogy, he doesn't take them and throw them in the middle of the pool and say, you're in the middle of the pool. No, 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 no. What he says is, why don't you relax? It's nice here. Just relax. If you could just float a little bit, then just maybe, if we could have a little bit of drift for these guys, they might end up in the middle of the pool and not even realize it. That would be good. If these guys in some way, if Nebuchadnezzar could create a life that's so wonderfully comfortable, so good and rich and all of that kind of stuff that they might start forgetting their identities, that they might start forgetting their allegiances, Nebuchadnezzar's hoping that they might forget that they're captives at all. He could have forced them. But the most effective thing he could have done is to allow them to choose him. So they would not even notice their captivity. We find ourselves from time to time in places of deep regret. We find ourselves where we go, how in the world did I get here in the middle of the pool? And never are those decisions the result of one single bad decision. The truth is that we find ourselves in those regrettable places because there are a series of of millions of micro decisions that we make along the way to allow ourselves the permission to get to the place where we finally end up in the middle of the pool. It's never one bad decision. There might be a decision that pushes us over the edge, but that's the last in a series of a lot of decisions. And this whole book is written to a group of people who are being held captive. The book of Daniel is written to people to say to them, don't lose yourselves. Don't forget to whom you belong. Don't forget, don't forget that you belong to God's people. Don't forget that you belong to me. Don't lose yourselves. Now, whether or not you're someone who trusts Jesus, whether you're just investigating the whole thing, whether you heard about the Bible series and wanted to get a sense of what it's all about, this is a major theme in the Bible. It is one that says, don't drift. Don't drift. So Daniel, verse one, or sorry, chapter one, verse eight says this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Remember, God's behind the whole stuff happening here. Verse 10, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid my, of my Lord and King who has assigned your food and drink. Why, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So here's what's going on. Daniel and his buddies go, we can't drift. We can't drift. So let's do this. Daniel says, what if, 
What if we didn't eat food from the royal table? Because one of the ways that we mark our belonging to God is our particular dietary practice, which says it's us and God. We don't belong to the way the world thinks about stuff. It's going to be us and God. So they say, what if we just had the vegetables on? What if we didn't eat this food, the stuff that defiled us? And though everybody else is doing it and it seems normal and we're being held captive and all that stuff, but what if we just didn't eat that stuff? And the guard says, well, I'd love to let you guys do that because I like you guys, but if you don't look good, I'm going to be in trouble. So Daniel says, all right, let's do this. If we don't eat, first of all, I want you to catch a picture of what's happening here. He doesn't stage a violent uprising. He doesn't say, all right, you guys, the four of us, I know God will be with us if we go and try and stab the king. If we try to take over, we try to rally our people, we could revolt, we could do this. I get this, this weird resistance here, which is just we're not going to eat the best food provided. Remember, the rest of the people in the land are living on nothing. They're living with just barely hoping they can get to the next day. And these guys are being provided with an opportunity to eat not only the king's food, but the king's ration, which means there's a lot of it. You've seen like a little fun-sized Snickers, and you've also seen a king-sized Snickers. That's the difference. There is so so much to be had. And these guys say, "What what if we just didn't participate? One American scholar says it this way. He says, like, one of the things Christians are called to do is to joyfully not participate, to joyful non-participation in the things of the world sometimes. These guys go, hey, look, we just, we just can't defile ourselves like this. What do you say? And so the guy says, all right, you guys get 10 days, and we'll see what happens. But when people were studying this kind of resistance, by the way, they began to see the most poignant example in the 20th century was a guy named Gandhi, who you probably heard of. And they said about Gandhi, there was, there was such a difficult thing because nobody knew what to do with this person who had this uprising. In fact, there was one English scholar who was looking at him. He was one of the, only few, was one of the few people on the, the sort of when Gandhi was, you know, staging his, his own revolution, who looked at him favorably and he said this. This is on your outline, but I want you to check this out. Persons in power, this is about Gandhi. Persons in power should be careful how they deal with a man who cares nothing for sensual pleasure, nothing for riches, nothing for comfort, nor praise, nor promotion but it's simply determined to believe or to do what he believes to be right. Now listen to this, listen to, that, listen to this. He is a dangerous enemy because his body, which you can always conquer, gives you so little purchase upon his soul. In other words, when someone says, I'm not about everything that the world could offer me, and even though it's incredibly normal for all of those kinds of things, it's just not going to be about those things. It's incredibly difficult to deal with that person. Sensuality, pleasure, food, promotion or praise, flattery. That's a person that's hard to deal with. And Daniel says, what if we didn't take everything that this world was offering us, that we're now living in, as just part of the normal being in this world? What if we joyfully, not, we joyfully non-participated, so to speak, in this kind of stuff. So they say, let's try a 10-day trial. We'll figure it out after that. So their guard comes back to them. Verse 15, here's what it says. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, and these four young men, God gave knowledge. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This is what happens. What I wonder when I read this is, okay, 
And you've got to imagine the people on the, who are reading this or hearing this story are beginning to think the same thing as I am, and maybe some of you are, is, okay, these guys are faithful. They're definitely dedicated to what God's called them to do. They're not defiling themselves. They're living as exiles in a world that is trying to just gently pull them away from living as they ought to be or how they ought to live. And wouldn't then God reward them with their faithfulness, with superhuman powers? Like, why doesn't Daniel have the ability to, like, laser beam people out of his eyes? Like, wouldn't that make more sense? And then God saw their faithfulness and gave to Azariah incredible superhuman strength that he could crush people with his bare hands. And another guy could move objects with his mind. That, to me, makes more sense. But this is what God gives him. All kinds of understanding and knowledge. To Daniel, he gave the ability to interpret dreams. Now, that's confusing to me. But it appears as though God intends for them to work in, within this society that they now are captives in a capacity of influence and understanding that they wouldn't have otherwise had. That somehow this, this ability to sort of operate as a kind of a, a, a revolutionary to joyfully non-participate has given them something else. Influence. Influence in their world. Influence in their society. Verse 18 says this. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. Notice, by the way, that they're no longer using the Babylonian names for this part. None equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Here's what's being set up. The, way, the original audience would have understood this differently than we do. The reason why their, their Hebrew names are used here is partly to show the contrast between all of the other ways of advisors and all kinds of other stuff in the land, the enchanters and the magicians, that there is a God who is superior to all the other quasi-false gods that would feed to the king whatever he needed to hear from. I don't know. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. These guys, Daniel... These guys entered into the king's service and there's a power of subversion which is happening here and it's very subtle. God has called these people, these joyful non-participants in the way the world is sort of operating to a position of powerful influence. And it is God himself who is in control and is operating in and through even a captive situation. And these guys, these exiles within this system, have an audience with the king. Something they never would have had if they were just regular old captives or rebels. And the whole story of Daniel, like the rest of the Bible, asks us this question. Where is your allegiance? We live in a system. We live in a world. We live in a place where there is everything that is calling upon us to float away. To gradually release from ourselves everything that makes us us. We live in a world that says if you could buy this, have this, possess, own, take control or give in to whatever desire in your own world that's the best possible kind of life and we see that as the beginning not of freedom but of captivity of addiction of being trapped where's your allegiance where are you at risk for floating away where are you at risk for becoming a captive and you don't even know it are there little permissions that you give yourself not huge permissions but little things that you give yourself little little conciliation, little, little things that you give, like, I, I kind of deserve this. 
I'm mostly loyal, but there's a, there's, a, there's a clear sense of me that I probably deserve a little bit of something here. Remember, it's just a set of a million tiny compromises, one by themselves, not enough to send us over the edge, but a million tiny little compromises create a pattern and a system for us to be okay with that. Some of you are um, in a situation where you're in a, a marriage that's like going through a tough time. Maybe you're not yet married and you're trying, to, you're trying as much as you might know how to maintain this kind of purity before you get married or whatever it looks like. And there's a part of you that says, you know what, I'm not doing anything really wrong. I just need a little tiny bit of pornography, just a little bit. I mean, it's not, I'm not going crazy. There are people who go crazy. They go off to faraway places and they find, I'm just, just a little bit, just a little bit of permission. I just, I deserve a little bit. It's hard to be me. Maybe you're in an office situation where your boss is a tyrant and you think everybody in the office is treating this person with not a whole lot of respect, so why should I? And maybe I'm allowed, I'm entitled because everybody else is gradually sort of beginning to cut some corners for themselves. And I'm I'm not, not, this isn't extortion. (laughs) This isn't like embezzlement. I'm just cutting a few corners. My work. Maybe there's some of us in the room who have this experience of It doesn't matter what kind of person I'm with in a relationship, but it's better to be with someone who I think probably isn't the best for me than being alone. You see, all of us have tiny little choices that we make that create a pattern for us. What we believe is that our ability to make those choices makes us free, and in some way or another, what actually ends up happening is we end up being more and more captive to those things. For me in my own life, I have, I realize I have, um, my, I have a ha- maybe some of you relate to this, I have a habit of taking in things that, that cause me pain or grief, things that would make me angry, and I just bury them. I just stuff them way down inside on the hope that if I buried them deep enough, they would disappear. And so I make a million tiny little decisions to push things and jam things that have wounded me, hurt me, whatever it might be, way into the depths of who I am. And what I find is that it's not that anger is abated, it's that it's just sort of storing up energy. And I find that the people, maybe this is true for you, the people I intend to love the most and protect the most are the ones who get me at my worst. My family. They feel anger that is disproportionate to them. And it isn't that one thing has made me angry. It's that there's a million little things I never really dealt with, and I just keep pushing them in, and eventually it starts to surface. And I wonder how did I end up in the middle of the pool? The other thing is this for me. I realize I have a, um, I look at people who get or have freedoms that I do not have. And I have a sense of, at first it's a little bit of envy. You know, I'm kind of like, wow, they get, that's cool. They got to go on a cool vacation. That's cool. That's good. Love that. That's good. It'd be fun if I could do that. Slowly that envy begins to morph a little bit more into like, you know what? I never liked that person. <laughs> Shallow person. You know, and, you know, and then pretty soon it starts to even a little more. In my head, I invent a fiction about that person. Oh, really? You went to Hawaii? That's cool. That's good. Probably kick your grandma, don't you? Uh-huh. You're mean. You hurt dogs and you, you yell at your, you're, you're like a mean, you're a mean person. You probably stabbed someone once in your past, didn't you? You know, like all of a sudden I have this, there, now you get the sense, obviously I'm exaggerating, but you get the sense there's part of me that goes, I want what they have, and slowly and more often than not, I begin to be less and less content with what I do have, and more, I'm more blind to what God has given me, less thankful, less gracious, and more, more wondering why I don't have what they have. And it's just because there's a million little tiny decisions 
that add up. That take me to the middle of the pool. None of them by themselves take me all the way there, but they begin to add up. Where I begin to slowly acquiesce to a captivity. And I lose my ability to resist, to joyfully non-participate, and I float, I drift. What does resistance look like? What does it look like to joyfully non-participate? One of the reasons, one of the things I found in my life is that this world that we live in, that appeals to our innate want, our innate desire to be floating kinds of people, is there's a huge voice of discouragement that comes at me from that same world. That says to me, maybe you can relate to this, you are not good enough. You are not qualified to do what, what God has intended you to do. You will never be able to, re, to sort of be a part of this kind of changing the world to be a little bit more alert, a little bit more free, to break, break, some, break free from some of these bonds. You're not enough. Because why would you ever try to do any of this stuff when you, you could mess this whole system up? Everybody's floating and enjoying each other. Why in the world would you try to mess with it? You're not enough. You're not enough. Maybe you've heard that before. I'm at this leadership conference called Fearless, which is ironic because I'm <laughs> overwhelmed by fear. But there's this Fearless conference, and I hate, I hate that I have to keep saying it. I want to keep saying it. It's a leadership conference in Nairobi. It's all I want to say, but it's called Fearless. And they have all these guys. There's a bunch of different people from all over the continent that are talking about what God is doing, how God's utilizing them to do all kinds of stuff. And one guy gets up. He's a guy from Uganda. He's a younger guy, 25 or so. And he gets up and he talks about what he's doing. He's a clown. He's like literally a clown. Like I don't mean like an insulting way. He actually is a clown. And he's not wearing any of his clowns. He just walks up like a regular guy. He's a clown and he's, he's, doing, um, he's doing all these birthday parties and things like that. And he realizes, he realizes there's a huge need in Uganda for kids who have cancer. Because he's finding that these kids would, um, would be, would, he like told these stories of families where they'd spend every single cent that they had to get from the, the rural areas of Uganda into the city, into Kampala, the, the capital city, to be able to receive cancer treatment. So they'd show up in the city with empty bank accounts, and they would say, our kid has cancer. And then they would say, here's how much cancer treatment costs. And the families would now be homeless with no way to treat their kids. I mean, this is the, like, reality. Like, you have to take, we can't do anything. So he said, i got to do something about that. So he, this guy, this is unbelievable, he says, we got to figure out a way to create a home situation for these guys. we got to figure out how to help them when they're in the city be able to be housed in a safe place. we got to figure out how to raise money for these kids to get cancer treatment. And when they're getting treatment, me and my clown buddies will throw parties for them and we'll have this kind of like cheer them up kind of situation. It'll be, it'll be this, and so he's telling this whole story. It's amazing. He looks at the world and goes, some things are just unacceptable. And I'm going to take some steps to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. 25 years old, he's a clown. Everybody's like in awe. Like, this is, what a stud. This guy's amazing. I run into him in the parking lot in between. I was teaching a lab, a little breakout session for this conference. I run into him in the parking lot. I'm like, Brian, hey, your story's amazing. That's so great. I go, what's next for you? I mean, you're, you know, you got these houses for these families and you're helping these kids get cancer treatment. I'm amazed. This is a guy, by the way, who's on the board at St. Jude's in the United States. This is a guy who works with Georgetown University. He's flying back out to kind of begin to work with some of these other medical centers to figure out some of this stuff. I mean, this is, a, he is a huge figure. He's 25 years old. So what's next? He goes, well, I'm going to take, you guys, heard of, you guys have heard of Rooted. You probably can't go more than a week without hearing us mention the word Rooted at Mariner's Church. But Rooted is our 10-week discipleship experience. Helps you get a, ch a chance to figure out who God is, what the family of God is like, all that kind of stuff, purpose. Well, the, the way you say that word in Swahili is the word mizizi. That's where we got the, this whole curriculum is from, uh, our sister church in Nairobi. We asked them, you know, how do you guys do this? And so we got this. So I said to him, hey, are you going to take mizizi? 
Oh, he says, I'm going to take Mazizi to these families and begin to help them. I go, that's so great. Rooted, that's such a great thing. And he goes, uh, so I said, hey, are you going to translate it? He goes, I'm meeting with people to get it translated. I go, oh, you're going to translate it into the Ugandan language, Luganda. And he goes, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I go, oh. He goes, I go, so you're going to use it in English? He goes, yeah, but um, I don't read. I'm just going to have it recorded into audio so that I can teach it to the people. Now, I'm tr at that moment, I'm literally trying to act cool. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, you don't read, sure. You're on the board at St. Jude's. You have this cancer thing for all these kids who can't afford cancer. Obviously, you can't read. I go, well, that's, that's, that's great. That's going to be awesome. I'm trying to, that's going to be the best thing. Way to go, Brian. You're the best. And in my mind, I'm going, oh, my gosh. I have a giant list of reasons why I can't accomplish what God has called me to do. I have a million things where I go, my gosh, you know, I probably can't do that. There's a million things the world says to me, which is, you do not make a difference. You cannot make a difference. You will just float away anyway, so why don't you give up now? And this is a guy who cannot read, who's a clown, who says, i got to do something about stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, how much longer do I need to limit what God wants to do in my own life? One of the ways we resist is we say, those voices of discouragement that say you can't do and you're not able to and you're not enough and God isn't big enough to help you accomplish any of that stuff, we say those are lies. God is big enough. The world doesn't have to be as it is. And we can joyfully non-participate in the lies of the world which would say just let everything go, just drift. Would you do this? Would you close your eyes for a moment? Where in your life do you find yourself at risk for drifting away? Where in your life do you find yourself at risk for floating into the middle of the pool that you're just relaxing so much that the world, is make, it makes so much sense and it feels so right to just let it all go? Where in, the, where in your own life do you find yourself at risk for floating away? Is there a part of you that says there's a spiritual component to my life and a non-spiritual component to my life and I just want to make sure those two, two things are separated out so I can live however I want in the non-spiritual part? Maybe God's calling you to unify those two worlds. Where do you float? Is it in a relationship? Is it in, per is it in personal secret choices that nobody knows about? Is it in business? Is it in your family? Is it in a secret habit or addiction that you bury that no one might ever know about it? Are you floating towards envy or bitterness or resentment or anger? What is it that is in your life that you go, I'm just making a million little tiny decisions along this path? Is it a need to forgive, a need to restore, a need to bring wholeness that you've said, nobody else does it, so why should I? Where are you floating? Let me ask you. How do you plan to joyfully non-participate? While everything else may make sense, while the world is moving in a particular direction, how do you joyfully not participate in some of what the world does just because it's just what we do? What does it look like to not participate? To resist? To use your own... The, the loyalty that God has created for you and in you, the identity that he's given to you to change the world have influence what does that look like 
for so many of us, what we're looking at is, what's echoed throughout the Bible is this clear picture of, I don't belong just to this world, I belong to God. And so I could say with my whole life, I'm yours. I've tried to live a life that floats, but it is robbing me of who I am. So we'd say, I'm yours. What does it look like for you to say, I'm yours? Jesus, we are a group of people who resist captivity. We're a group of people who say we no longer want to live a pretend life of captivity and call it freedom. Father, you've called us to live rich and full lives of hope and of freedom. And it cannot be done without a joyful non-participation in some of what the world has to offer us. Father, we be people of influence. People who are challenged. We be people who give up things that we call otherwise, that, that are holding us captive, that we say will no longer drift. For some of us in the room, maybe for the very first time, maybe for the first time in a very long time, if we're in a situation where we've been drifting, we might need to say, in whatever way we might say it, that it's about you, Jesus, that we would say these words and they would have new meaning for us. I'm yours. I do not belong to this world. I belong to you. I'm tired of captivity. I'm yours. Now for some of you, as we respond, just your eyes still closed. We're going to respond in a collective prayer of singing and song. Some of you may need to actually come forward to write down something on our, in our prayer wall and place it in the wall. How are you floating? How are you drifting? How are you resisting? Whatever it is that you might need to leave here, that you might need to bring before God. Some of you may need to pray with some of our prayer team. Because our response isn't just in singing in passive sort of in our chairs. It's coming forward and being prayed for and being a part of this response. And it is a fearless kind of response. It's a courageous response. So I invite you as we continue to pray and to sing and to respond together to do that courageously. Father, would you hear our prayer as we sing together, as we respond in prayer, as we care for each other? It's in your name, Father, that we pray. Amen.